0: Let's ask God to help us uh, with his word. Uh, True and living God, uh, thank you that there is a word spoken by you for us. And we thank you that this word directs us to Jesus so that we can trust him for life and teaches, rebukes, corrects and trains us so that we can live as his followers. We pray that we would know the work of your word in our hearts, that it would strengthen our trust in Jesus and equip us to serve him. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly as I ought and help us all to understand, to believe what you say and by the power of your spirit put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd been uh, reading along in the book of Malachi to this point, uh, you're probably starting to wonder why God puts up with this people. He declares his love for them at the beginning and they doubt it. We read that they constantly reject God's word. When God speaks, they answer back, challenging what he said. Their leadership, the priests, treat God with contempt. They accept abusive relationships amongst them that cruelly dismiss a long-term companion or unfaithfully compromises the existence of the whole people by introducing idolatry and to top it off they complain about God as if he is the problem, his unaction, his unfairness in not blessing them as they think they deserve. Why does God put up with people who doubt his love, reject his word, grumble about him? Actually Sometimes you may wonder yourself from time to time why God puts up with you. Why? Oh, and when you're like that, what does God say is the way back to a good relationship with himself? In this short section of Malachi, God does tell us right at the start why he puts up with a less than perfect people. And then he goes on to tell us the way back to a good relationship with him. And what we see is that his perseverance with a sinful people is never acceptance of their sin, but a commitment to be true to himself and the relationship, the covenant relationship, he has entered into with his people. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. There's both hope and threat in that memorable statement. God says he will never be any other than the God he has declared himself to be. And so, back in Exodus 3, to Moses, he declares himself to be the great I am, who always is as he wills to be dependent on no one and nothing for life, independent of all, subject to none other than himself, absolutely sovereign. No rival can change him or divert him from his course. Oh, and he's told us more about himself in his dealings with his people. At the golden calf incident, the Lord declared to Moses his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Lord will never change from being this God. And that means... A God of steadfast love, he will never give up on his commitments. The faithful God, he will never go back on his promise. And so there is great hope in the Lord saying, I do not change, for those who entrust themselves to his promises. Because those promises are always secure, for he is always faithful. Oh yes, and there is great hope here, for those who know they need mercy and grace. For he doesn't change. He is merciful. But at the same time, there's also a threat here for those who do not want to honour the Lord as God. You see, he doesn't change. He will never stop hating what he has declared he hates, however much what we approve might have changed. God will always hate what he says he hates, always love what he says he loves. And he will never stop being the Lord, the ruler over all. And of course that means that all rebellion against him will ultimately fail. Yet at the same time, there's always hope for the repentant, for those who cease rebelling against God and turn back to him. Because God has said, Ezekiel, he doesn't delight in the death of sinners, but rather that they would turn and live. And he does not change. For the people of Judah in Malachi's day, God's declaration meant undeserved hope. For they also had not changed. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed from the days of your fathers. You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. The Lord knows their character. He's not surprised by their disobedience. Addressing them as children of Jacob is two-edged. Yes, Jacob received the promises, but he was also a deceiver. And the history of the children of Jacob, as God says, has been one of almost continual rebellion. As soon as they're saved from Egypt and committed themselves at Mount Sinai to worshipping God alone, they make the golden calf. He brings them through the wilderness to the border of the promised land and they refuse to go in. Once in the land, well, the book of Judges reveals a terrible cycle of unfaithfulness and idolatry from which God repeatedly rescues them. Then, rejecting the Lord as king, they asked for a human king. And under those kings, there was repeated idolatry, entrenched idolatry. And that rebellious idolatry over centuries had led to the destruction of Jerusalem and exile to Babylon And yet, now returned from exile, Malachi is still addressing the people of God's lack of fear of God. They're despising of God, they're blaming of God. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside. That was a truth that couldn't be denied. But because the Lord had chosen Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, because as we saw God say in chapter 1 that he has made them the object of his electing love, I have loved you, a love they refused to recognise, because he has loved them. The Lord perseveres with them. He has not destroyed them totally. In fact, as we see here, it's the Lord who takes the initiative to call them back to himself return to me he says and i will return to you now this language of returning is the language of repentance the people have walked away from god pursuing their own plans and without moving they're now like the prodigal living far distant from god they must return but more, the language of return is also the language of the covenant, that formal binding agreement God entered into with his people Israel at Mount Sinai. And before they enter the land of Canaan, on the plains of Moab, Moses repeats the contents of that covenant to the people of Israel, our book of Deuteronomy. And that repetition finishes in chapters 28 to 30 with the blessings that would flow from keeping the covenant and the curses, the judgments that would flow from disobeying the covenant. And right at the end of that section on blessing and curses, God concludes by speaking of a time when, having experienced his judgment, they would come to their senses and, verse 2, return to the Lord. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God. In calling them to return, God is actually acting consistently with his covenant, the commitments he has made. He's being faithful to the relationship he's entered into with them. And he is now summoning them to act in accord with that covenant. Returning is the way back to right relationship with the Lord. And the Lord accompanies his summons with an amazing promise that only he can make. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. And that is amazing because their repentance, their returning, that doesn't deal with their sin. But here God promises that he will deal with their sin to make it possible for he himself, the holy God, to return to relationship with them. He will deal with their sin to fulfil the promise of restoration in the covenant, to keep his commitment. And that really is extraordinary. And what it fully means him to be faithful to his commitment, will only be revealed in the death of Jesus. That is what it takes for God to be reconciled to a sinful people. This is a very gracious promise, return to me and I will return to you. But they say, how shall we return? Can you hear them talking to each other? What can God be talking about? What Malachi on about? I mean, we're here. We're in the promised land. We're making the sacrifices. We're doing the whole temple thing. What's the problem? We can't see what God's getting at. What more could he want? But God has shown them through his prophet the reality of their promise. Yes, they're there with their half-hearted religion that shows contempt for the holy almighty God. They're there but not taking his word seriously, challenging it every step of the way. They're there, but doubting his love. They're there, determined to do whatever pleases them in their personal relationships, who they marry, how long they stay married. Yes, they're there, thinking that the Lord is the one not keeping his side of the bargain. They are there, but they are so distant from God. And that can be true of us isn't it you can be here in church just like that going through the motions not thinking that there's anything more really yet sitting there doubting god's promises determined to do what you want not what god says and grumpy with god because you think he's let you down how shall we return God focuses his call for repentance then on something that is obvious and measurable. He points to where they're falling short in tithes and offerings to show them their heart. And it's true, isn't it? What we do with our material possessions, our money, is actually a pretty good, a reliable measure of our attitude to God. And God says, will a man rob God? At first sight, that sounds such an absurd question, doesn't it? God needs nothing from us. He gives to all people life and breath and everything. Yet we rob God, our Creator, when we do not give Him what we owe Him and all His human creatures owe Him. We owe Him our thanks, our praise. Oh, we owe Him our love, our trust, our service, our obedience. But you know, believers in Jesus owe that twice over. I hope you know that if you're a believer in Jesus. Remember the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's right. God has redeemed his people, bought them to himself through the blood of his son. Believer, you belong to the Lord. All you have is his, to be used at his direction. All you are are is his, to be given to his service. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. They were not giving God what they owed him, but they claimed to be entirely unaware. But you say, how have we robbed you? Perhaps because they were ignorant, you know, the priests had failed in their task of teaching their people. Or maybe because they were just dismissive. Had decided already that God's demands were unreasonable, that times were tough and they weren't getting the blessing they thought they ought. And, you know, they were giving God something and they, he really ought to be grateful with whatever, you know, they could spare How have we robbed you? God's clear in tithes and offerings. Bring the full tithe in. Probably they were bringing in some because verse 10 speaks of the need to bring the full tithe. Again, their worship is half-hearted, giving a little bit to keep God going and get him off their backs, a kind of celestial insurance. But they were not doing what was commanded in the covenant. You see, tithes and offerings were not optional, but had been commanded at Mount Sinai. A tithe, as the Christian Standard Version says, was a tenth. And the law, Leviticus 27, commanded that a tenth of everything was to be set apart for the Lord. Now that tenth was to be used to celebrate God's goodness when they went up to the temple. But every third year, Deuteronomy 26, the tithe was to be gathered up for the poor, and that those tithes, those tents, were used to sustain the temple, its worship, and those who served there, the priests and Levites, and also to support the poor. And offerings were offerings given in fulfilment of a vow, in addition to the tithes, and also a portion of the sacrifices. That were for the priesthood. Now these tithes and offerings weren't voluntary contributions. They were obligations of the covenant commanded in the law. Oh yes commanded for their good because it sustained the worship of the temple with its attaining sacrifice and it provided for the poor and both suffered temple and poor where they were not given but they were commanded Yet the people were not bringing the full tithe in. Why? Well, they seem to be justifying their disobedience by their circumstances, by what appears to be bad harvests, bad seasons. But God says here, verse 9, those bad seasons were actually a warning, a sign that they were experiencing judgment for disobeying the covenant, experiencing the curses described again in Genesis 28. See, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 28. You see there, verse 15, it says, If you don't obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. And verse 38, what's one of them? You will sow much seed in the field, but harvest little." little. You see, like many today, The people of Malachi's time were turning their present experience of judgment into a further reason for a faithless disobedience. Yet God, in faithfulness to his covenant, is graciously calling them to change their mind and their behaviour. Return, he says, stop robbing me. And God makes clear the specific content of their returning, of their repentance, what they had to change. They had to start to trust him enough to do what he has said with what he's entrusted to him. They have to start to trust him enough to do what he has said with what he has entrusted to them. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. The whole tithe, not a bit. You see, the problem was they thought they were the owners and so had a right to negotiate with the Lord what they would do with what was their own. Oh, and they had come to love the gift more than the giver, to get more security from full barns than a relationship with the living God. But the reality is that God's the source of all the good they had, all the productivity of the land on which they relied. It's all God's. The land itself, the fruitfulness of their fields, their very lives, just like all we have, including life itself, is God's entrusted to us. They were stewards, they'd been entrusted with what they had, and it was to be used God's way, because the steward's responsibility is to be faithful in following their master's instruction. And God encourages their repentance by making another extraordinary promise. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Put me to the test. Now, this is not the proud doubting of God's word, the testing in the wilderness that God forbids. There in the wilderness God had given his people a promise that he would bring them into the promised land but as they experienced hardship and trial they refused to believe that promise. They refused to trust God. They complained that God had brought them into the wilderness to kill them. Their testing in the wilderness was a demand that God do more, that God meet their expectations about what should happen when they believed him. Their testing, this testing is where They wanted to call the shots and God had to earn their approval by doing what they demanded. But that's not the case here. Here God's call to test him is a call by God to take him at his word. And where they did that, says God, they will find him faithful to his covenant to the promise to provide abundantly for his people. They would experience the blessing he'd promised his people in Deuteronomy 28. Again, Deuteronomy, it's all about the covenant. There, the blessings of staying in the covenant, trusting God and doing what he said. Verse 12, The Lord will open for you his abundant storehouses, the sky to give your land rain in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And the Lord can do that. For he is, and I hope you believe this, he is the Lord of creation who, as the psalmist says, covers the sky with clouds, prepares rain for the earth and causes grass to grow on the hills. He provides the animals with their food. He's the source of all life and blessing. And yes, he even controls the locusts and the insects. And God says that as a consequence of relating to him in repentance and faith, the people would then enjoy peace with God, their God, who had entered into gracious covenant with them. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. They'd be the people then. God had called them to be, and that land would be a foretaste of Eden, a renewed Eden, where they trusted God and returned to him. They would show in life to the rest of the world how good it was to trust and obey the living God. God is patient and persevering with the sinful people. The expression of that patience is his calling of his people to be his people, to live in relationship with him, his calling of them to return. And the call to repentance is an expression of God's patience with us. So consider the question God is asking his people in Malachi. Are you robbing God? Is the unchanging, faithful God calling you to return to him by giving him his due? Your love, your trust, your obedience, your sacrifice. That trust and love, that shows itself in obeying God's good word in every area of our lives. But notice God's word does have a focus here. It is on what you do with the material things entrusted to you because that's a great barometer of the reality of our trust in God. So are you giving God what is his due by obeying God? in the way you use the material things he has entrusted to you the way you use your money the way you use your resources now let's think about that because it's easy to misapply this passage see I could use this passage and get up here and say you ought to tithe give a tenth of your income and we could discuss whether that would be pre or post tax I'd enjoy that conversation right I could use this passage to say, look, if you give to God, I can guarantee that God will give to you. But both those things would be to misapply this passage. You see, the New Testament never calls or commands believers to tithe. Paul, for example, talks about money, about supporting the work of the gospel, about giving to the poor. But he nowhere instructs believers to tithe not even by way of advice. And Malachi 3 isn't about securing your prosperity by trading with God. It isn't saying, give to God for what God will give to you. If you've been listening all that stuff about Deuteronomy, Malachi 3 is actually about living faithfully in the covenant relationship and knowing God's faithfulness to his covenant. But to be in covenant is to say the Lord is God. He rules. The prosperity gospel that says that it's God's will for you to be wealthy now and you will be if you just believe is the very opposite. It's not the life of faith and repentance No, it's the life that keeps self first, where you and your needs and desires dominate your thinking. The focus is not on obeying the Lord because he is the Lord, but on using him to enrich yourself. Or at least to enrich the preacher who tells you, send your money to me and God will bless you. That's not trust. That's transaction. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, God. Oh, and I can be disappointed and angry when you don't deliver. And that prosperity religion is not Old Testament religion. The Old Testament tells us you can be righteous and poor like Job or rich and wicked like those the writer of Psalm 73 was tempted to envy. Its ideal is not wealth but contentment. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. (coughs) And we read in Hebrews that the Old Testament saints didn't look for their reward in this life. They looked to the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Malachi 3 can and is misapplied. But just because Malachi 3 can be misapplied doesn't mean that we should fail to apply this passage to ourselves. And so we mustn't fail to ask ourselves, are we robbing God by not giving him what is his due? Are you robbing God by not giving him what is his due? If you're a believer, as I've said, All you are and have belongs to him. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. We're told that our worship, Romans 12, is to present our bodies to the Lord. And, of course, that is your whole self without remainder. All you are and have is his. And that expectation shouldn't surprise you, should it? Because Jesus called for, well, at the very beginning of a Christian life, that commitment of our whole selves. If anyone would come after me, he said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We've got to commit ourselves at the very beginning to walk every step of the way at his direction. To be a believer is to know that all you are and all you have is God's to be used at his direction. So, is that reality that you are the Lord's showing itself in your life in the way you use your material resources? Do you show you trust the unchanging, faithful God by using what he has entrusted to you in the way he commands? Because he does give us instruction on what we should do with our money. I'm going to run through it very Briefly, the references are there in uh, the handout. And so Scripture tells us, God tells us, we should provide for our families and not be dependent on others. Oh, and Scripture also tells us we ought to pay our tax and be generous to the poor. Galatians 2. The one thing the other apostles asked of Paul was that he remember the poor as the Old Testament instructed. And from the outset we see in Corinthians and Acts that was a feature of his ministry and of the lives of the Christian congregations that were founded through his preaching the gospel, remembering the poor. The scripture also says that those who work in the gospel should earn their living by the gospel and those who benefit from it should support that ministry with what God has given them. And the scripture encourages us to give to the support of the spread of the gospel, gospel work, where we are not direct beneficiaries of the ministry. This is Paul in Philippians 4. Speaking of the gift they gave to him, the Philippians gave to him when he was working elsewhere. He calls it a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So ask yourself, do you use what he has entrusted to you in the way he commands. That's how you show your trust in him. But actually, you need to ask yourself something more. Do you think of yourself as a servant, not your own bought with a price, as a servant who is a steward of your master's assets? You see, we can see what God commands about our money and organise ourselves to do all those things. You know, a bit to church, a bit to the poor. Oh, yeah, we we do pretty well as a family, and no, def, definitely, definitely not dependent on anyone. That's why I got the second car if the first one broke down. Right, we can we can do all of that. We can organise ourselves, right, and still think to do what God commands with our money, and still think we're doing God a favour. Or still doing it reluctantly or anxiously. Still thinking, this is one of the issues with tithing. I've given God his bit. The rest, praise the Lord, it's nine-tenths. I'm glad God didn't ask for more. The rest is mine to do with as I please. But actually, God is calling for more from us than just tick a box giving. He's actually calling for a certain ambition in our hearts that will engage us and all we have. He's calling us to think of ourselves as servants who are stewards of our master's assets, of what is his, of what is his stewards whose ambition like the good servants of Matthew 25, that parable is to use all that our master's entrusted to us to enhance our Master's standing, his reputation in the world. He's calling on us to be stewards who heed our Master's call to store up treasure in heaven. We heard it read in Matthew 6 again, 1 Timothy 6. Those who are rich in this present age, verse 18, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. God wants his people to be like him, ambitious to do good, to be generous, to be willing to share. Servants who are content with what our master gives us. That's right, we rob God where we're discontent and love money. Content with what our master gives us and want to use it all to his glory. You see, if you're a steward, you don't ask, have I given enough? You ask, what can I do with what my Lord has entrusted to me to bring honour to him? That's right, that's the question. What can I do with what my Lord has entrusted to me to bring honour to him? Oh yes, that does mean doing all the things he commands, looking after our families, paying our taxes, but it also means being ambitious to do good and we have lots of opportunity to do good. There are, for example, the plans of this congregation to bring on more pastors so that we can more effectively sustain the evangelism we do and so that we can be equipped to incorporate new believers and help every one of us to mature there at these plans. There's the work of AFES, the great work of AFES, through people we know personally on the campuses in our area. There's the work of the gospel overseas. We've heard a little bit about it this morning. We have opportunities to do good as God raises up some from amongst us and brings others to us who are working the work of the gospel in other places. And we always have opportunity to do good to the poor. So what kind of servant and steward are you? Are you eager to enhance your master's reputation, pursue his interests with what he's entrusted to you. If there was an audit of the way you used your money, would it reveal regular deposits in heaven? You, making an investment that will only come good on the day Christ is revealed. We should be ambitious to do good and to be generous. That's what God is calling for from his people. We should be ambitious to do good and be generous because our faithful God has given us good promises. You heard one in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be provided for you. Or another in 2 Corinthians 9, where God is, uh, through the Apostle Paul, is encouraging cheerful, free, voluntary giving. He says, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way always having everything you need you may excel in every good work these are the promises of God we should trust him because that's what his people do they trust him more we should be rich in doing good because in his unchanging faithfulness and steadfast love Our God has enriched us beyond our wildest dreams by giving us his great gift, the gift we celebrate at Christmas, by giving us Jesus, who's removed the curse from us by bearing it himself and so made it possible for us to return to God. Oh, who's removed the curse so that we can enjoy peace with God, be secure in peace with God forever. The great gift that's brought us to be enriched now with every spiritual blessing and will raise us up at the last day to be like Jesus. We will be like him for we see him as he is. The Lord, the unchanging Lord, the generous and kind Lord, The Lord, who in faithfulness to his commitments to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, has sent his son to bring us back to himself, is saying to his people, Give me what is mine. Stop robbing me. Give me your love, your trust, your obedience with all you have, your thanks, your praise. Give me yourself. Take me at my word. Find me faithful. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would remove the excuses of our unbelief and move us to take you at your word, to know that what you say of yourself is true, that you are merciful and gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who will never fail, in your promise, to know that what you save yourself is true and that you can be trusted utterly. Help us to show that trust by using what you have entrusted to us to bring honour to the Lord Jesus by being rich in doing good. Help us to be stewards who ask what can we do to enhance our master's reputation, to increase his assets, to bring him glory. Because we have known your generosity to us in bringing us back to yourself through the blood of your son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.